Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. In light of COVID-19, our regularly scheduled 9 and 11 a.m. Sunday services are currently suspended. During this time, we will live stream our 11 a.m. Sunday morning service and plan to offer other online connection points throughout the week. You can find us on Facebook or visit www.rockpoint.org for more information, including important schedule updates. Good morning. I want to welcome you again to our gathering here. And uh, if you are standing, you can have a seat or greet one another if you're in a home or in a couple of are doing uh, uh, house parties and viewing parties together. Um, uh, we're going to continue to keep you informed as to some of the developments around here. We've been in a series entitled Songs in the Night, and we've been talking about the book of Psalms. And forgive me today, normally, uh, especially people who are gathered, we have some type of humorous you know, engagement. It's very difficult to do that uh, when it's being squeezed through the lens of the camera. Uh, today I want to talk to you about the passage that had been intended for this day, but I need to preface it with some comments beforehand. And even the psalm itself has taken on a deeper meaning, I think, in light of what's been swirling around us. For those of you that do not know us, that you're just viewing this in from a distance, then you need to be aware that we are not a politically driven church. We are a biblically driven church. I've said, and you've heard us say, that those of us who serve this fellowship are not performers, nor are we politicians. We are pastors. And as part of that, there's a responsibility that we have. And while we may not always execute that with perfect grace and skill, we strive to do so at least. There is a statement that Martin Luther King made that I've mentioned many times from this pulpit. And I'm reminded of it today. He made the statement that the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. I find that quote powerful, not because Martin Luther King said it, but because as much of what he said it is so rooted in Scripture and so rooted in the ideals of Christianity. Recently, this past week, um, our president uh, made a brief visit to a church and raised a Bible up and walked back. And what he did with that was not right. I don't say that because of something I saw on CNN or Fox. I say that because of a 30-second video clip that the White House produced within hours of that, where the Bible was used strictly as a prop. The Bible is not a prop. It should not be used as a symbol um, towards a political end. Now, to be completely fair on that, uh, we had those on the other side of the aisle that immediately pulled out the Bible and attempted to use it as a bludgeon to beat him up, whether it was the... Um, Speaker of the House, Ms. Pelosi, or the Governor of New York, uh, Mr. Cuomo. In each case, these politicians are using the Bible as a prop or as a bludgeon, and it was never intended to be so. And I would caution 
those of us who call ourselves Christians to not be manipulated by the politicians who use those for whatever purposes, whatever policy issues, not part of the conversation today. I'm not trying to slant you towards anything other than respect for the Word of God. That we are not to let our faith be used or to be manipulated by politicians. There's a real power in Scripture. There is a real authority in Scripture that the world so desperately needs. The Bible and the Scripture tells us about reality and the state of the human condition. It is so valuable today, not just to Christians, but to those who are not Christians as well. If we look into this book, it, it explains so much of not just truth, but, but applies to our circumstances even today. In his book, quote, For the glory of God, how monotheism led to reformations, science, witch hunts, and the end of slavery, sociologist Rodney Stark argues that Christians were the very first people in history to even imagine that slavery was not a normal condition of human society, as was universally assumed throughout uh, history. When he wrote this, Rodney Stark was not a Christian, or at least he claimed to not be. He has since then uh, come to an understanding, evidently, after writing this. There were those like the Jewish Essenes who didn't like slavery, but only in Christianity, Stark argues, did the idea develop that slavery was sinful and must be abolished. Why did this idea develop in Christianity and not anywhere else? Because of the Bible, because of that scripture. Jesus' first followers didn't forbid slavery. Um, uh, they did, however, in their New Testament writings, especially in Paul, they um, unlocked implications of our identity as image bearers of God, and we're going to talk about that a bit today. New creations in Christ, including the notion of universal human dignity, something also that was rooted and discovered first in Scripture. Universal human dignity, regardless of race, creed, background, national identity, or anything else. And so the long um, uh, barriers between slave and free and Jew and Gentile and male and female even were torn down, and we find that rooted in Scripture. Other Christians informed by what was written in the Bible led eventually to Wilbur Wilberforce um, actually taking, William Wilberforce rather, uh, taking uh, the position that led to the complete abolition of slavery. The world owes a debt to this book that was so callously um, used as a prop for the very basis of human rights and human dignity. When I turn to the Bible, I see racism condemned from beginning to end. And we'll talk about that as we get into this a bit. In the New Testament particularly, and, and let's go back to the Old Testament, we're, we're, we're discovering that everything goes to a common root, that we're all in fact one race with a common ancestor, and science has proven that sense. In the New Testament, we're told in Acts 1.34 that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In Acts 17.26, that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth. You've got the passage of John 3.16 where God so loved the entire world that he gave his son. As we look at the Bible and look at it past the idea of some manipulative element, we see within it 
the things that shape and define who we are as people and how we're to interact with other individuals, how we're to view people, whether they're left or right, black or white, whatever the, the, the position that someone would hold, gay or straight, that there's something that's supposed to respect them and honor them. And I'm not just pulling something out of context. In fact, one statement that I heard years ago that has continued to stick with me is that a text without a context is just a pretext for what we want it to be. In other words, if we are pulling scriptures out, many of you have seen this, and this is why you no longer even follow the Bible at times, because you've seen people, whether it's politicians or pastors or others, just rank a scripture out and throw it as a bludgeon or throw it as something else to, to uh, reinforce a position. A text without a context is just a pretext for what we want it to be. But if we examine things in context, if we look at them and, and explore what this was all about, then our understanding is made complete. And so it's with that as the precursor to our conversation today that I go to what we'd originally intended to go to that has been something that as we unwrap it, you will see um, is not only at the heartbeat of God, but has been part of this congregation for decades. Psalm, the eighth chapter, a relatively short chapter, but packed with items that we need to be aware of. It begins with the first verse, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. The phraseology here, and it didn't translate onto the screen here, but that first Lord is actually capitalized. And whenever it's capitalized in Scripture, it, it is actually the name Yahweh, sometimes translated as Jehovah. It's the actual covenant name of God. It's like a personalized name. And then the other Lord is correctly represented with just a capital L. So when it's all capped, it means Yahweh. When it's small capped, then it means master or uh, like it says, Lord. And so what David is saying in this passage is he's invoking the, the personal, the covenant name of God and then the position of Yahweh or God to his people as Lord. So it's basically saying um, our God is our master, our our God is our creator. He is our Lord. It's talking about how excellent his name. He's saying in all the earth, it's not just in Israel, but he recognizes that, that there's a, a vastness to God's presence that not only fills the whole earth, but all the earth is subject to him. Uh, it says you've set your glory in the heavens. Another translation says you've set your glory above the heavens. And it's saying that not only is his glory here on earth, but it's something that actually exceeds and goes beyond the heavens. As we go into the second verse, in the second verse it says, through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And so it's, it's talking about these, these little children here. And David touches upon a very familiar theme in Scripture, the idea that God uses weak things to display His glory and His strength. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe 
and the avenger, that there's like a fortress that's been set up against the badlands, and, and this fortress in the praise of these children has somehow um, silenced the enemies. It's, it's embarrassed them. It's, it's, it's set them aside in some ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 tells us directly, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. There's something about God that he delights in taking those things that are, are small or viewed as insignificant or um, unimportant, and he turns those things into something of a fortress or of a power to impact and to transform and to change people. Maybe it's the case of just um, the idea of something so small uh, ridiculing someone else or praising someone else that the person is ridiculed by it. The idea of a giant guy trying to confront a little one and it's like, what does he do in that situation? Or especially if that one overcomes that person. If we look into Matthew chapter 21, verse 16, Jesus references this psalm in this passage. He says, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him, his opponents, Yes, replied Jesus, have you ever read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? He's quoting the psalm. And why is he referencing here? Because the children were saying, if you go to the 15th verse, Matthew 21, 15, just before this, when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Children loved Jesus. I'm going to give a, a small shameful plug for, for a, a television show right now. Never do that. In this case, there's a television show called The Chosen, and it has so far been a brilliant um, exposition that has stayed biblically accurate while bringing out the characters of the individuals. And there's one of the episodes that just highlights how much the children loved Jesus and how much Jesus loved these who were marginalized in their society and, and, and meant to be uh, uh, seen but never heard, but he listened to them. One writer says that the first responsibility of love is to listen. I really wish that could be blasted very loud and clear. But the first responsibility of love is not necessarily even to act. The first act of responsibility is to listen. And I think he listened to these children. He engaged them and they loved him. And so they're, they're honoring and praising Hosanna, the son of David. And in the praise of these children, he references this passage in Psalms from the lips of children and infants, you Lord have called forth your praise. And who are they praising? Where's the praise going towards? The praise is going towards God. And so in this moment, Jesus was even saying that he was in fact God. It's a powerful thing to see something small used in such a powerful fashion. God is always doing that. It's, 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 it's little Israel, not the might of Rome and, and, and Egypt through which the blessing comes. It's a David against a, uh, a Goliath. It's, it's a, a Gideon against the Midianites. It's maybe you. And the smallness of whatever you have and carry that, that can somehow be expressing something in the grace and humility and peace of God that can bring forth a strength that can transform a moment. Satan and his adversaries seem to have nothing to, to say about this and, and, and they seem to be overcome. One writer, Spurgeon, says this, um, Aha, O adversary, to be overcome by behemoth or Leviathan, uh, in other words, some great giant might make thee angry, but to be smitten out of infants' mouths cause thee to bite the dust in utter dishonor. 
Thou art sore broken now that, quote, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou art put to shame. God doesn't, doesn't blast his way through. It's just in the simplicity at times of these innocents that he brings these others down. Going on in the scriptures, it says this next passage, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind? This is the core of the, of the, uh, of the, of the passage here. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. This, this scripture, more than any other, has stood out to me over the years. I've always had a fascination with the stars, and at one time I thought I'd be uh, heading for the astronaut program and was looking at the, the, the uh, getting involved with the Air Force out of the Air Force Academy, actually visited, explored all those stuff, and then God decided that uh, I needed glasses and some minor, really minor correction in my vision, and, and for some bizarre reason, the government won't trust me with a multi-billion dollar spacecraft if I uh, happen to drop my glasses at some point in time, and so I could not go that route. But at night, I look at the stars, and even last night, maybe because I was soaked on this so much, I was dreaming of looking at, at a massive quantity of stars. When I consider your heavens, David knew what that was like to be out on the hillside with the sheep and to see the, the, the stars spread across with zero light pollution, a sharpness and a clarity. I've been up on Mauna Kea um, in, in Hawaii, where, uh, which is way above, and they have all these telescopes above the clouds, and the clarity as the evening drops that you can see, things that we often can't see in Metro Detroit or in an urban setting. I'm told that with the naked eye, one can see about 5,000 stars. And with a four-inch telescope, one can see about 2 million stars. With a 200-inch mirror of one of the observatories on Mauna Kea, one can see more than a billion stars. And the universe is, is so vast that if you were to travel at the speed of light, it would take 40 billion years traveling at the speed of light to reach the edge of the universe. This is the vastness that David is trying to say is, is the glory of God. These fingers of God they're so incredible. They made these vast items in this vast universe. And yet in the middle of all that, the same fingers, the same things that made creation in this vastness also created man. And so David contrasts the greatness of creation. And every time I'm out at night, it captures me. And then he says these same fingers made man. And when you consider the greatness of the heavens... Then, then why is it that you're so considerate of us as human beings? We are so insignificant that in the light of all of the creation that David has just outlined, we are like a single grain of sand amongst the vast um, beaches and, and, and dunes of the world. That if that single grain of sand representing our planet, our entire planet, were suddenly just to disappear, it would have no impact, no recognition at all. And in the same way, it would seem that us, in the insignificance of who we are in light of all of creation, if our entire planet would just pop like a, like a soap bubble, it would have no impact, it would seem. And yet God is mindful of us. He thinks of us. He considers what we do. 
David uses a, a, a somewhat um, poetic expression of this when he says, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. Mankind in a larger sense, all of humanity that you think of him. But then specifically the humanness of who we are, that you care, that you visit us, another translation says. It goes on to say that you've made us just a little bit lower than the angels. It's made all this contact and care that you made us just a little bit lower than the angels, not a little higher than the beasts, notice. His gaze is upward, not downward. You've made us just a little lower than the angels. There's a question on that translation as to whether it's a little lower than God himself. There's a thought also the term little may mean a little lower, but also can mean for a little time. And there seems to be some thought that just for a season of time are we a little lower than the angels. But in fact, we are destined to be greater than the angels. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 leads to this when it says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more so the things of this life? And so you, sitting where you are today, you were created for just a time a little lower than the angels, but in reality, you are above everything in creation except for God himself. Spurgeon, again, this one writer says, a little lower in nature since they are immortal, but, and but a little because time is short and when that is over, believers are no longer lower than the angels. And God's glory is above the heavens, and yet this passage of Scripture says that, that he crowns us with glory and honor. Crowning with glory and honor, something that you would give to monarchs and to kings, but instead he has crowned us and has made us to be just a little lower than the angels and eventually above them. That he's given us the glory and the honor of kings and of queens. The wrapping up of this psalm says this, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals in the wild, birds in the sky and the fish in the sea that swim the paths of the seas. And then Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Genesis, again, all these other scriptures, putting all this in context. Genesis makes it clear that um, God created mankind in his own image that in the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. This same passage um, before and after it talks about the rulership, that we're responsible for this whole planet. Now, having said all that, that we're responsible for this whole planet, Psalm 24, verse 1, again, keeping all this in context, says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and the world and all who live in it. So we've been given dominion over all of this creation but it all belongs to God, which means we are stewards of it. We've been given rulership. We've been given all these resources. Everything you have, every breath you take, comes from God. And all belongs to Him. But we're responsible then for being stewards of this. And again, David has us looking upwards and saying, we're just a little bit lower instead of downward. He properly puts our gaze upward. And because we are supposed to have dominion over all these things and rulership over all these things, what a great tragedy is 
When a man is captured and held bondage by the things of this world, by the things that we were born to have dominion over, and yet we get captured by them, and they begin to rule us, our passions, our needs, our desires, the very things that we were supposed to have control and domination over in the name of God now control us. But the original thing was that we were supposed to be just a little lower than angels and only for a little bit of time. And this concept of the vastness of all this nature, the emphasis put on mankind brings David back again to praise Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It brings him back to a position of praise and of worship. When David thinks of all the vast things that God has given mankind, of how humble we are in light of all that, and yet God exalts us. David understood the position of man in creation says far more about the glory of God than saying anything about the glory of man. And understanding it shouldn't give glory to man but instead should cause us to want to praise God and honor Him, that He would see that, 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 that He would see us in such a light. It's got to really be confusing for Satan. He's got to look at these, these weird little creatures that crawl upon the earth looking for graves to die in and say, I am so much brighter, more beautiful, and more gorgeous than these little creatures. How is it possible that someday they're going to reign and rule with God in heaven? There are three wonderful and important truths about man found in this psalm. When these truths are denied or neglected, man never is what God made him to be. The first one is that God made man, all man. We are one race. God made man something glorious. And God made man for a high and worthy destiny. One of the key passages of this is what I flew past very quickly earlier. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And again, taking Psalm 8 in the context of the New Testament and everything else so we have full understanding. A key part of why God values us and where we're rooted in is in this passage that says, God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them that we were made in the image of God. We've taught this many times before. There's a Latin phrase called the Imago Dei. Through this lens of this scripture and all of Psalm 8 and all these other things we've read together that we find uniquely in the Bible, we have a view of all of mankind as brothers and sisters. As all of mankind, regardless of position, as, as worthy of, of respect and of honor. That there's something of the image of God stamped in every person, regardless of their race, their education, their national identity, their profession. Their profession, that every single one is to be regarded with respect. Every single one is marked with the image of God. C.S. Lewis addressed this at one time in The Weight of Glory when he said there are no ordinary people that you have never talked to a mere mortal. He said it may be possible for each of you to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. In other words, we may 
be caught up with ourselves over this idea of being image stamped. But it's hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about our neighbor, also God stamped. He says, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, you are not a god or a goddess, but possible in the sense that you're just below God, that once we are risen up beyond that of the angels, that God's intention for us was something that would appear to us. As gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in the nightmare. We are constantly moving to be more of what God intended us to be. This being of, of glory and greatness just below God and serving Him, or something dark and ugly as we reject God and go a different direction and become more like Satan. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It was these teachings, these thoughts, in large part, that informed the American Revolution. The American Revolution that established this country was unique in that it was founded very strongly upon these Christian ideals and thoughts. The American Revolution was rooted in faith. It led to this First Amendment that we talk about, which expressly permitted the church, and, and really it was specifically Christianity, but in general religion, the freedom to be the church, and incidentally, to be guided by Scripture without interference from the state. The 1960s civil rights protests were soaked in prayer and in Scripture and in Christian thought. This revolution resulted in this country. But being a student of history, again, all things in context, there was a later revolution, not too long after our revolution, inspired by our revolution, but rather than using faith as a baseline, it used reason as a baseline. Doesn't seem to be unreasonable. It's entitled The French Revolution. And the French Revolution, um, starting in 1789, just a few decades after our own, had this far-reaching social and political upheaval. It overthrew the monarchy, established a republic, catalyzed violent periods of political turmoil. Uh, it resulted actually in something called the terror. It resulted in the deaths of, of over 16,000 people, including the very leaders who initiated the revolution. It resulted ultimately in the dictatorship of Napoleon 
At one point in time, Notre Dame that had a fire recently um, was turned into the temple of reason. And because so much of the clergy had supported the aristocracy, they literally de-Christianized all of France. They, they either executed or exiled um, all those uh, that were supporting Christianity uh, at that time. And so France was de-Christianized. The result was a bloodbath, uh, a disorder, uh, something that eventually ended up in dictatorship, a, a drastic difference between the American experience and the French experience. The French influenced by the American in the sense of freedom and liberty, but not rooted in faith, not soaked in Scripture, not of an understanding of that. And it went a whole different, darker direction. And it wasn't over when Napoleon ruled. Historians will tell you that the French Revolution deeply influenced and helped to initiate the Russian Revolution, resulted in communism. Tens of millions of people killed in the name of socialism. That that in turn helped launch the Chinese Revolution, resulting in the, in the death of tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions at this point in time. These states each recognize that Christianity rooted in Scripture, not in some other driven issues, but rooted in the Bible were dangerous to them. Eventually it overthrew the Russian Revolution, the Chinese one is still in question, and some of the actions we see even in Hong Kong today um, seem to have some roots in some of the insecurity and fear that the Chinese might have, the government might have in regards to it. Again, I, I'm not trying to speak of politics on any of this stuff. But we were founded originally, and the revolution that was originally started here was rooted in the Bible. Not as a prop, not as a tool or as a bludgeon, but thoughtfully contextualized and then put into being. The early civil rights was rooted in Scripture and in prayer. There's another revolution that's sweeping the country right now. And one of the questions we need to look at as this is going forward is whether this is going to be in the vein of the American Revolution or if it's going to be in the vein of the French. And it's not just a matter of what we're dealing with right now as a nation. As a whole, as a nation, we're increasingly moving away from those baselines. I would caution you in this season of time on two key things. One is to be careful who you follow and who you place your trust or your identity and who you give your loyalty to. I can have strong political views, but for me and, and for those of us who are rooted in the Christian tradition, our first identity is in Christ. Our first loyalty is to Christ. Our first connecting point through the lens through which we see things are Scripture. And that leads us to this other point, which we have now just gone through with Psalm 8, New Testament, Old Testament, the beginnings of man, all of these things in context together that tells us that all are made in the image of God, that everyone is worthy of respect and honor and dignity. So we walk this path and we strive to see how do we apply these things? How do we protect and respect the dignity of everyone? How do we uh, eliminate these things that divide us? 
together as a people if we root those in contextualized passages of Scripture, we can come to good conclusions. As we respect every individual, as we begin to listen carefully and thoughtfully, and as we do not let a message of peace and of unity get co-opted by others with other agendas. And I don't say that with any specific issue other than just to be on guard, because that's what happened in several other revolutions. But it doesn't have to be the case. We as Christians, regardless of whatever backgrounds we have and whatever experiences we have, are connected by one um, central thing, and that is um, our salvation, our identity, our understanding of Jesus' love and grace for us. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. That the central issue of even what our country is being torn apart right now is one of sin. Whether it's been perpetrated by protesters or whether it's been perpetrated by police, whether it's been perpetrated by the state or, or, or whoever the case may be, the root issue of this is sin and it won't be fully resolved until we own that and we find our identity in Christ and we come together as one people. This morning we're going to take a communion and our communion is an open communion. You don't even have to be a member of this church. We don't care what your color is. We don't care what your politics are. We don't care whether you're educated or not, whether you're pretty or ugly. We don't care. The real central issue is, are you a follower of Christ? Do you understand that your sin, your weaknesses, caused all of us to have been executed, but God gave of himself through his son to rescue all of us? He took the beatings and the stripes. He took the crucifixion, all that. If you recognize that, if you've been broken by seeing a glorious God and recognize our insignificance and yet realize God still chooses to reach down and, and pick up this one grain of sand representing our entire world of mankind and, 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 and glorify it and hold it as precious. If you've been broken and restored, then, then you're welcome to join us in this communion. It's open to all. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, we are told in the Scriptures, as He gathered with His group of disciples, there were blue-collar tradesmen with no education. There were those that had education. There was at least one sympathizer with the Roman occupiers and, and, and at least probably two radical uh, um, protesting violent types. All those individuals of all the different backgrounds laid things down because something in Christ caught them. And at this Last Supper, this Passover meal that was to represent um, the freedom from slavery for all the Jewish people, he now takes that to, to represent the freedom for all of mankind from the slavery of sin, the thing that we are supposed to dominate that now has dominated us. He took that bread and he broke and he said, this is my body broken for you. And so Lord, this morning we come together as your disciples, people of disparate backgrounds, 
but common in our need. And we thank you, Lord, for it's by your grace even that we gather now and are made whole, even in the brokenness of your body. In your name we pray. Amen. So we take together. He took a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Don't ever forget in the heat of battle, we forget in, the, in the, the injustices that have been done to us or that we see, we forget in our anger and in our hurt and in so many other emotions that surge forward, we forget that it was his sacrifice. The injustice first visited upon him, his innocence violated that we find truly our salvation and our freedom. And it's only in that identity, only in that identity that we ever find true and complete and total freedom. The world can attempt to change us, but it only works on the exterior. Inside, the only thing that can change the interior of a man and a woman, the only thing that can change their heart is the grace and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we gather this morning scattered as we are as a people of different races, of different backgrounds, of different um, uh, education, all the different things that are part of that, but we are one in you. Even different political beliefs, but we will not let those political beliefs shatter the table of Jesus Christ. And now in the midst of all these things, we raise this cup and we say, Lord, it is by your grace we have been both broken and restored. What is man that you are mindful of us in the glory of everything, and yet you do, and you care for us? We thank you, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall we take together? This psalm that we have just taken apart bit by bit, that we've contextualized with Old Testament and New Testament to give this beautiful picture um, that David paints of his understanding of God and his love for mankind, for, for each individual stamped and made with the image of God. And this morning we're going to close this gathering um, with this song and encourage you to sing with us. And if I have offended you, then I apologize. If anything, my tone has caused you offense. If there's anything in this that makes you uncomfortable, though, and, and moves you to a deeper understanding of the things of God or how to view one another or, or how you examine your identity and your understanding of loyalty, then for that I, I make no apologies at all. We've been a congregation that, that for decades has embraced the principles talked about here today, and we will continue to. We will not be co-opted by anyone. As this song is being taught to you today, um, lean into it, even where you're at. It's one of those that, that we're going to sing when we're all together. There's two or three songs particularly I want to sing when everyone's together, and this is going to be one of those. So you need to practice this now, okay, so that you can sound decent when you get here, all right? And actually, that's the nice thing about being together. Whether you sound decent or not, we don't care either. Just care that you're here, and I look forward that that'll be sometime soon. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we ask, Lord, even that you would empower our praise. The, the psalmist begins with praising you. 
And then after examining all these things, comes back, even though man has been lifted up as something to be honored, he comes back to worshiping you and saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how magnificent are you? How wonderful are you? So Lord, we began with praise and now we close this time also with coming back to worshiping you. Inhabit our praises this morning in Jesus' name. I pray right now for our president. I pray, God, that you'd penetrate his mind with your truth. I pray that you would penetrate the mind of Nancy Pelosi as our Speaker of the House and Governor Cuomo and our own Governor Whitmer and all those who are in authority, Lord, whether as mayors or as governors and leaders throughout this country, Lord. I pray for this country. We pray, Lord, for this world, for this planet. We ask, Lord, that your peace and your justice, but also your grace and your love would be made known. Guide us as your people so that we can with wisdom engage um, your word and interact with the world around us. Guide us, protect us as a people, I pray, and lead us in your ways, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll continue to be with us over the next couple of weeks.